My name is Dr. Ruth Mary Allen, and this is my podcast, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. Our world has become a minefield for our children to get the best out of their brain and whole body health, which is why I founded the Wellbeing Warrior Academy to help them navigate this minefield effectively. Right now, if you go to www.wellbeingwarrioracademy.com and use the code PODCAST10, you can get 10% off all programmes. That's www.wellbeingwarrioracademy.com and use the code PODCAST10 at checkout. Now, let's get back to this week's episode of Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. Welcome to the show, Brain Health Unchaining Your Pain. I am really, really looking forward to the conversation we're going to have today on the episode with the amazing Liz McConaughey. Welcome to the show, Liz. Hi, Ruth. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So for those that don't know Liz, she is, I think from reading her book, a little bit of a force to be reckoned with, but she's (laughs) an ex-RAF Chinook crewman. She served 17 years and did two deployments to Iraq and 10 to Afghanistan. She suffered from PTSD and in 2020 tried to end her life. She's recently released her book, Chinook Crew Chick, The Highs and Lows of Forces Life from the Longest Serving Female RAF Chinook Force Crew Member to help others with mental health struggles. So I'm really looking forward to diving into this because it's such an important topic and it's really easy I know from being in the forces myself to kind of brush problems that you may experience under the carpet or maybe not feel that you can talk about them in as open a way as perhaps needs to so I'm really looking forward to having this conversation and really thank you so much for writing that book because I've really enjoyed reading it as well. Oh that's great to hear it's a bit of a mouthful isn't it the title but you've done so well. So before we start, I'd love to know what you're passionate about in life right now. So I think my main passion and purpose right now is giving back, you know, um, giving back to others and certainly helping others with their mental health from my story and the struggles I went through. Yeah. And I think that's really important because it's sometimes really hard for people, isn't it, to share their story? Yeah, absolutely. It's quite traumatic. And the more I'm sharing, the more I'm getting from people. So it's actually not just a cathartic exercise, but it's been really good um, in terms of opening those conversations. Yeah, I think that's great, actually, because sometimes we think that we're just we're like sometimes you think you're the only person that's in the boat. You know, when you've experienced a trauma or a series of traumas, but actually opening those conversations, you realise actually there's a whole boatload of people. That's the feedback I've been getting from a lot of the talks I've been doing, I've been doing a lot of them um, sort of after dinner talks and kind of like sort of evening talks with people. And that is the biggest feedback I get from people is they come up at the end and they say, I thought it was just me that was feeling like that. And they, they realise that actually everyone goes through these struggles. So, um, yeah, it's been it's been really good for that. Yeah, I, I love that. And uh, before we dive into your story, I'd love to know for you, what does optimal brain health mean for you personally in the context of your life's journey? That's a really good question. I think for me and for the how I learned the hard way um, is that I was pushing my brain to its limits. I wasn't giving it time to decompress after the things that I'd seen. 
Um, and I felt like I was just on a treadmill all the time with it, you know, just constantly busy, constantly burying my head in the sand. So I think in terms of optimal brain health now, I know when to step back and say enough's enough. Um, not just to say that I'm not okay, which is obviously really important as well, and it is okay to not be okay, but also to say to people, I've had enough today, just, you know, I'm, I'm going to go to ground, I'm going to take some time out to focus on me, um, and certainly, you know, looking back at my experiences in 2020, there's so much more goes into how to keep your brain healthy, and that's things like diet and exercise, and I know it's the oldest saying in the book, you know, get out, get some fresh air, go for a walk with friends, but now I've learned to balance you know, an hour in the gym versus an hour walking in, in lovely bright sunshine like we've got today with friends. I get just as much from that as I would do going to the gym for an hour and being on my own. So I think I've, I've really learned to balance things and, and understand what, what needs to go into my body and my brain to keep it healthy. Mm. And I think that's a really important point. That's obviously, particularly with COVID happening, is people, and I certainly noticed for myself personally, is that because we do a lot of working from home, it's easy to forget that you can get away from your desk and get yeah. outside because you don't necessarily have the same incentives that you would have had in the office because you had to. Well, exactly. Um, I'm hugely gregarious. You know, I just love people. And that's one of the great things about having the book out and doing all these kind of events. I'm meeting so many people and, and almost feed off their energy. But there has yeah. been times working from home where I haven't even left the house for a whole day. And if you let that kind of mission creep happen where the next day you don't go out and the third day you don't go out or you go to the petrol station and back or the shop and that's it, you have very few interactions with people. And that's a really dangerous place to be for your mental health. I think, you know, we all need yeah. to be around people. And if that's the biggest lesson from out of COVID isn't it that we actually need people we all love to pretend we're an island and we're really great at being you know solo operators and independent the truth is we all need each other on this planet yeah I think so and has there ever been a time if you could take us back um when you felt that you didn't you felt alone that you didn't have that network of people that were so essential to you yeah, I mean, it was COVID for me, really. I joined the Air Force when I was 19. I um, I mean, it was like being in a big family. From day one in the Air Force, you are surrounded by people that are very like-minded, very driven individuals. And you you work with them, you go to the gym with them, you sleep, eat, repeat with them. You know, we, could, we deployed Afghanistan. We all lived together for three months, essentially. So they do become like brothers and sisters. Um, and then when I left the Air Force, you know, I kind of lost that really close network. Um, but, you know, I still had a quite, quite good network in terms of they were all around my local area and, and I got a new job and, and had a very similar kind of bunch of family slash colleagues in, in that new job. But as soon as we got locked down, all of that was gone. Um, and I had recently gone through a divorce. So I was actually living on my own during lockdown. And it was that, you know, separation from everyone in the early days with um, the very first lockdown. If you remember, we weren't even allowed bubbles with people. The bubbles. No, unless you had a very vulnerable person. Yeah, and, and there I was, literally just me on my own for weeks on end, because I think it was only meant to last for two weeks to begin with, and then we ended up, I think, six weeks into it. Um, and the only person I would speak to sometimes, face-to-face, -face, was the lady in the co-op around the corner. <laughs> I'm sure she wanted rid of me sometimes, because I'd stand there forever talking to her. But it, it was a very lonely time. That isolation was just, yeah, very yeah very raw. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point to, to bring out, is that, you know, COVID kind of really changed the dynamic of our view of mental health, didn't it? Because we yeah. became so used to that being connected to everybody. And then suddenly for people like yourself and, and many other people who were, you know, 
physically living by themselves is that connection was taken away with the most important people that that you needed to connect with, even if it was someone from the co-op or yeah. you know the post office or whatever. It's like there is another human being out there beyond the four walls of your of yeah. your house. And what I did think as well, I mean, I am a really social person and the more, the deeper we got into lockdown and the more isolated I became that year, the less I actually wanted to talk to people and it became a really absolute opposite of, of my normal being and my normal sort of habits. You know, the phone would ring sometimes and I haven't spoken to someone in three or four days and the phone would go, I wouldn't answer it. I just stared and stared at it because by that point I was becoming so isolated and so closed up. Um, mentally, I didn't actually want to start talking to people. Um, and as that year went on, I became quite unraveled of PTSD, which I'm sure we'll talk about later. But mm. I didn't want to answer the phone and have to pretend that everything was okay. And, you know, I knew that those questions were going to come. So I just yeah. isolated myself even further and it became a very downward spiral very quickly. Yeah. Almost going further and further into that shell, which for me, who's so chatty normally, was absolutely 180 out from normal behaviour. Yeah, I I know my my mum lost her uh, her husband, my dad, just before lockdown, and obviously uh, she lost him in October, and then we went into lockdown, and she was very isolated herself, and and she she freely admits herself that she started closing down to quite yeah. a certain degree because yeah. she didn't want to pretend everything was okay. Yeah, uh, and, and it wasn't, and it got, it got to the point I had to intervene. Had to intervene. Yeah. And what as well is that my behaviours changed uh, as that year went on, you know, not just in terms of mentally, but all the things that um, I'd love to do. Um, like I did a lot of running before lockdown. I mean, yeah. in forces, I was kind of at the top of my fitness peak, really. I used to do triathlons and things like that. Yeah. And all of those things I used to do all the time, I stopped doing. I stopped loving doing them. And even when we came out of the first lockdown, I, I and, and we were allowed to go out for runs and, and slightly longer walks, things like that. And even when the gyms opened later on that year, I didn't go back. And, and what, what do you think was the reason for that? Was it because you got in such a deep, dark state? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, at, at one point in my life, you would have had to literally, you know, put a rope around me to keep me out of the gym. I was just always in there all the time. And, and I couldn't just bring myself to go on on some days. I would, you know, get dressed in my, my cycling gear and I'd stand and look at my bike in the hallway and just will myself to go, go out on it. And I just couldn't. And then it was, you know, all the kit off back to bed until three o'clock in the afternoon. And it was like there was a mental block in my brain that just wouldn't let me over that hurdle to get out the door. And I think if we hadn't been in lockdown, anyone I knew would have picked up on those behavior changes really quickly because yeah. they were quite significant. And and no one did because we were in lockdown and it was so easy to cover them up in terms of, I mean, I knew I was rapidly changing my behavior and my yeah. routine. Um, you know, I'd gone from a very clean diet and living really healthy to suddenly just binging on sugar to try and lift my mood. And um, but when people called me, you know, how are you getting on, Liz? Because a few people suspected there was something going on. I would, you know, classically go, oh, just back in from a run. Or, yeah, I'm just finishing my salad. You know, those kind of things and just completely Was that up. the truth or were you just, like, fibbing? Uh, no, absolutely lying, you know, just so that <laughs> nobody suspected there was something wrong. And, yeah. you know, I covered it up because I didn't want to be a burden to anyone. I almost didn't want oh. people to start digging um, because I, I think I didn't at that point want to admit that there was something really, really wrong happening in my brain and it was going in the wrong direction. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting that you said that, that you didn't want to be a burden. Yeah, I um, I said that in a, in a few interviews I've done really since since the book came out, and 
think because I was the only female doing my job for quite a long time in the forces, and I've always made a very strong point of saying that I was never singled out to be, you know, the weaker sex and was always made to be one of the team. Um, very much so, you know, we were just a big gang together getting on with the job. And I think like many people sometimes, you know, it doesn't take somebody else to make you feel like that. It's an imposed pressure that we put on ourselves from inside. Yeah. And I very much didn't want to be the burden in my, my job in the Air Force as a crewman. You know, I didn't want to be the girl around the back of the tent crying at the end of a hard day in Afghanistan. And I certainly didn't yeah. want to be the, physically the weak one either. So I always kept my, yeah. my focus in top peak. Um, but that not wanting to be a burden is something that, you know, I, I still, I think, carry with me today. And it's a really, it's a very bad mindset to have. But sometimes it's, it's not other people that make you feel like that. It's yourself. You internalize that pressure. Um so I, yeah, I didn't want to call any of my friends and even some of my civilian friends by this point because I thought, well, we've all got something going on. You know, everyone's mm -hmm. got something going on in lockdown. Nobody needs my problems on top of that and nobody needs to look after me. So, um, yeah, it was very much, you know, that word burden was just, you know, like a big flashing red light above my head. I don't, don't be that person. And um, it's interesting you say that because obviously as you took on all of the trauma, and the the deep, you know, the dark, depressive state that you were going into, you actually created more of a burden. Yeah. If that makes sense, by not talking. Yeah. It became like a, a dark cloud, you know. I know yeah. people talk about the, the black dog that follows them around, but it did, it felt like this blackness that just I couldn't get away yeah. from, you know. And even when I had the odd, uh, and what I did notice is that. It, it, it kind of festered the black cloud arrived very very quickly you know in the space of a couple of months really over lockdown and I, I just couldn't get out from under it you know the odd day I would pull myself out and I'd go huh. for a run go for a walk with friends and I'd come back buzzing you know I'd have a Sunday out with the girls and been walking for miles and feel really good about myself and think right that's it I'm starting to dig out of the tunnel here I'm starting to dig my way out or climb out of this hole and, and yeah. a day later I'll be back in it and that's where, you know, the, the the dark days outweighed the good days. And, you know, having now come out the other side of that through all my PTSD counselling, it almost was a reverse process coming out the other side. I had, you know, slightly more good days than bad days, but I still had bad days. And yeah. I quit it to like surfing. I, I can't surf, but it's the nearest thing I can equate it to. And that I was very much drowning during lockdown. And as I sort of started to come out the other side of that, I was able to, I guess, stay on the surfboard for a little bit longer. But every yeah. so often, a big wave would come and just knock me off. And I spent yeah. a long time. I think all of us want answers. for When something happens, we all try to look for the reason why, don't we? And especially yeah. something like PTSD and someone who's ex-military. Every time I had a bad day again or a bad few days, I would try and look for why. I had to know why, why this happened. Was it something I'd watched on TV that triggered me? Was it a phone call from a friend? Was it something I'd yeah. eaten? Sugar? And I'd look for the trigger. And actually, the, the truth is, sometimes there's just a big wave, bigger than the rest of them, and it knocked you over for a few days or knocked you off your yeah. surfboard. But I got better yeah. and better at, at understanding that and getting back on the surfboard and then staying on the surfboard for longer and having more good days than bad days uh, to the yeah. point where, you know, bad days are very, 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 you know, yeah. frequent and far between now. But, yeah. but it was a reverse process and going into that black cloud, you know, I just had, I started to have more and more dark days as, as lockdown went on. Yeah, I think it's a great analogy. I, I often use the wave as an analogy myself. It's like, I always think that we're, we're in an ocean of emotion. That's and, good. And, yeah. and, and the waves are emotional waves and, and they cut, they either hit us and you go bongo sliding. If you're a, you know, if you're surfing, yeah. you just get trashed by the wave, don't you? 
and yeah. you kind of feel like you're drowning in it because you because you can't swim and you're just tumbling and tumbling in this wave but eventually like you say you you learn to either take your surfboard and dive beneath it and pop out the other side and you're okay because the wave has passed and it just dissipates in its own end with its own energy into shore or you or you go do you know I want to ride this wave I've got yeah. this you know yeah. it's okay if it's a negative emotion it's okay if you know it's okay to ride anger and ride yeah. it to shore but I know that I can control that wave and use it to my advantage and not be crushed by it or not you know go bongo sliding or get trashed by it and it yeah. takes lots of practice oh it does and one thing I have found is that having embedded routines um help you get through that so I because again I used to love going to the gym all the time and whenever I was having one of those dark days I just couldn't didn't want to go out the door didn't want to go yeah I realized now is that even if I don't want to go and and for me it was so hard to get my head around this concept because I'd always been that gym bunny I'd always been that person the forces you didn't have these waves hit them you know I was yeah. very I was on it you know I was the resilient girl I, I didn't break so for me it was so you know so far removed from my personality to have these waves being able to hit me and knock me over because I was you know unbreakable at one point or so I thought yeah. But now I realize that even on the days you don't want to put the trainers on and you don't want to go out for a walk with your friends, you don't want to go to the gym, it's that routine and going, no, just go and you know you will feel better for it at the end. Yeah. I, I know I can say that because I, I, I'm able to do that. Now, that said, I know there'll probably be people watching this who go, or exactly the same place as I was during that real deep depression and lockdown where I was almost saying that to myself. You know, my mom was saying, Elizabeth, just get your trainers on and just go for a 10 minute walk easier said than done you know I just couldn't even motivate myself to push through that and stick with the yeah. routine so so I know that I'm in a better place now because I know that I, I can even on the bad days go and push through and keep that routine going and it almost does like you say diving under the wave um yeah. I get through it you know yeah. I believe the, the days that I want to ride it I sometimes sit at home and yeah get a bowl of popcorn out and watch some Netflix and tell the boss I'm not functioning today I'm not humaning today <laughs> And and that's all right as well. I think that's all right for anyone. You don't necessarily have to be somebody who's had PTSD or somebody who's gone through some trauma. There's yeah. just some days that we don't want to be an adult and you don't want to climb under your duvet and live in a you know live in a tree hut and lock the door. <laughs> so yeah. that's also okay. But it's but it's being it's being able to be human and authentic and being able to admit that some days we're just not all on point. You know, it's not all yeah. ten, ten in terms of mood and it's not all you know amazing Facebook pictures making it out that your life's amazing because it's not for you know it's not all the time for everyone and that's absolutely impossible to you know try and even achieve that yeah and I and I I love to to you know from the point of the fact that you were very active and obviously went into lockdown and the ability to be active going to the gym was kind of taken away from you because yeah. you had the routine and then you couldn't do it you were generating from a activity perspective lots of really helpful neurotransmitters in your mind uh, like BDNF and oxytocin and uh, 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 and um, serotonin and dopamine and so on that would that your brain would re have really been loving because yeah. you were exercising and it needed those things to function during the day and then obviously when that was turned off like the tap was turned off like hormonally our tap gets turned off as females at some point in our lives our hormonal yeah. tap turns off is suddenly you you don't have all of the happy chemicals that you would have had flooding your body every day to top you up yeah. so it, eventually it just drains and drains and drains and drains 
that you run out of the dopamine motivation chemical to get you to fill up again. Um, That's exactly it. I think think you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. I think because I exercised so much, I mean, some people would probably would have said I was addicted to exercise and that's the truth. It was, you know, it was such a response to my trauma and such a coping mechanism that I used to run, you know, 10 miles a day easily and every day. And and a lot of forces people, actually, it sounds like a lot of fizz, as we call it, or, you know, when we you know go to the gym at lunchtime and maybe run to work and run home from work and we we all a lot of people I knew did that um yeah and we were almost addicted to fizz but well, then you run it I, off don't you if it's some I mean I like to run stuff off but it, yeah it becomes a thing that helps you release the tension yeah uh that and, gets and very much I did sports you know I would do cycling and running and swimming and things where I didn't have to engage with people <laughs> and uh but it would it would help me very much empty the bucket and yeah. and then top up the bucket with the good stuff, like you said. But you know, as as the first few weeks of that lockdown, you know, I, I, and I look at how other people cope with lockdown. I have a, a really great friend who um had just started boxing before lockdown, and as lockdown hit, she you know just absolutely shot through the, to the stars. She started doing her boxing training and going out for her runs and skipping in her garden, and she was able to kind of motivate herself to do all those things and there was someone like me who was so motivated normally just hit rock bottom and and couldn't and like you say as the first three or four weeks kind of carried on it was those initial weeks is that there was less and less exercise like you said the good stuff went down in my body and I had to replace it with something because I think that's what addiction is isn't it you can't just stop usually you have to replace it with something else and I absolutely replaced it with sugar and was addicted to sugar for about Mm -hmm. six months because Um, you would have had the serotonin which is your happy chemical was what you would generate from an exercise perspective and obviously just gradually that bucket emptied and before you knew it you know it was almost like the kind of too late (laughs) because you noticed too late and then the only option because you didn't have the motivation the dopamine was low too (laughs) the easy route was the sugar which is what I did when I hit a depressive low and you know for me started having the suicidal thoughts the, the go-to was not exercise I used to love doing but reach yeah. for the the chocolate cake yeah every and, afternoon and the and the coffee hit to yeah I would eat all the sugar, sugar cereals is my thing and I look back now and I think like I don't know how I was fitting some of it in my body because I would go through boxes and boxes of cereal in a day and the thing with sugar is that obviously the more you eat and the less you move you're going to start to put on weight and the more weight you put on then the less you want to move and the more you want to eat because yeah. you're depressed about that and it's a really very vicious circle and I, I know I went through from being you know about nine stone fighting weight and a real slick runner at the start of lockdown to being 11 and a half stone when I came out of lockdown and yeah. you know I know a lot of people put on weight during lockdown and I can absolutely see why because we were all almost trying to you know just replace all the stuff of like seeing friends and socializing with something else yeah um, you know, I certainly wasn't drinking. So for me, it sadly, it wasn't partying and barbecuing during lockdown that everyone else had. It was just this pure yeah. addiction to sugar and trying yeah. to get as much of it into my body as possible. Yeah, yeah. I'd love to go back to your to the start of your career now, if if you wouldn't mind, to your to where your story started. Um, could you take us a little bit on a whirlwind tour of your journey? Because I know you started in the careers office or certainly you picked up a magazine uh, yeah. and, and noticed this picture on the front yeah so my um my brother was joining the army and when he went to join the army I went along with him to um a place called Palace Barracks back in Northern Ireland 
So off he went to do his exam and there was a magazine on the table in the waiting room that had a, a guy hanging out the side of a helicopter on what I thought was a rope. So I asked the chap in the office, he was in uniform, I said, what's this job, this guy on the rope and the, hel- and the helicopter? And he said, well, it's a, a wire for starters, not a rope. Uh, and the job title is helicopter crewman. And I was just sold. I remember looking at that magazine and just thinking, I just want to be that person. And I didn't really know much about what the job was to begin with, but I was just like sold. I just want to look that cool. <laughs> so I uh, I did a few interviews back home in Northern Ireland, got accepted to go across and I found myself uh, arriving at RAF Cranwell at age 19 to join up. Um, so I kind of whizzed through training really quickly. I was very lucky, got posted to Chinooks, which is all I ever wanted to fly on because um, my job as a crewman is very much the eyes and the ears of the pilot and, and yeah. putting the internal loads inside and all the, the anything that doesn't fit inside we put underneath on the hooks and it's the biggest helicopter that the, the British forces operate and you can fit the more, most inside it so I including thought well, your mini yes exactly including the mini so um <laughs> which I took home one weekend when we were flying from Northern Ireland but you know if you're going to do a job do the best the biggest and the best one so I wanted Chinook so I was very lucky I got them and Arrived at Odium um, on my when I was twenty and had my twenty first birthday on the the Chinook School there, and and was in Iraq at twenty one. I was the youngest guy recruited. Wow. Yeah, and and the only female at the time on the wing, uh, who was a, a, a crewman. I mean, there was a few girls ahead of me who didn't stay for too long. They went off to have families and, and change jobs and to mm-hmm. other other trades. But I was the only one, so. It was a bit of a baptism of fire. It was a steep learning curve and there was nowhere to hide because, you know, I was, it was just me, the little blonde yeah. girl from Northern Ireland. I, I, you know, if I messed up, everyone knew. So, yeah, it was, um, it was quite interesting. But what I loved about your story is even though you were the only woman, you were just part of the crew. Yeah, it was like having loads of big brothers. They were amazing. Yeah. And, and they all seemed to look after you and pull funnies on you, just like everybody yeah. would. Just one of the gang. And I've always said, you know, if, if women in those kind of niche roles, you know, if we think we deserve a medal for doing them, then it's almost like admitting that you're not capable of doing them in the first place. You know, the best testament for equality is, yeah. you know, just getting your head down and getting on with the job. You don't need a yeah. fanfare to shout about it. Just just do the job and do it, yeah. you know, do it well. And you will always get the respect of the lads if you do that. Yeah. You know, if you don't shout about how great you are or that, you know, my, one of the phrases I absolutely hate the most is, you know, um, anything a man can do, I can do better. It's like, well, that's not what it's about. It's just do yeah. the job as best you can. <laughs> so um, I think I think that's really important, actually, because you know, it, when we try to be great like that, we're kind yeah. of diminishing their the men's capability, and that's almost saying that they're less than just yeah. because of our gender, which is yeah. like you say, not what it should be. You're, Part yeah. of the cruise, it's the t- part of the team, aren't you? Yeah, and Doesn't coming back what, what gender about, preference or gender you are. No, coming back to that thing about being human as well. You know, no matter you know, even if I was you know absolutely amazing at my job, there would be things that I couldn't do just because of my physical ability. But you know, they in some of the lads would have to help me, and it's having the humility to say, look, I am not strong enough to do this, and someone help me. But yeah. equally, there was things we'd be doing in the back of the aircraft, like when we fitted some of the vehicles inside. And the lads couldn't shimmy underneath to attach the straps because they were just too large or too tall yeah. sometimes or their hands were too big to get into the fiddly parts. And I was able to do that. So it's just the case of play to your strengths and, yeah. and use your strengths to strengthen the team rather yeah. than you know trying to, you know, a team isn't about each other competing. You know, a team is all driving together in the same direction. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was very much teamwork the whole way through. Yeah. 
And I know your experience in Iraq was quite different to what you experienced in Afghanistan, but you kind of had your first dice with death, didn't you, uh, in the Chinook uh, when it got stuck in some wires that weren't yeah. shown on that. Yeah, they, that was very early on in my Afghan um, deployment. So, yeah, Iraq was a bit playground for, for me in terms of whenever I went there, um, the war fighting had finished. So I went there with the Chinook fleet and we were doing things called routine tasking. So that was moving a lot of the troops and the freight around the area. But we didn't get shot up very, very often. And a lot of the landing sites we go into had either been rocketed or mortared the week before. But we it was absolutely made safe before we would go in. Um and then, yeah, we moved to Afghanistan in 2005 and it ramped, it started to ramp up. Now, the early days in Afghanistan, again, was quite quiet. Um, and as the campaign, as the campaign kind of escalated and we put more and more troops on the ground up the Helmand Valley, then things became more kinetic and, and more bullets were flying. There was more IDs and, and that's where things certainly ramped up. But yeah, early on, um, we actually, my, my aircraft flew into a set of wires at a place called Kajaki Dam, which was at the northern end of the Helmand Valley. Um, now in the UK, if we if we've flown into a set of hel- uh, wires, we absolutely would have landed on straight away uh, and probably left the aircraft for three or four weeks to be repaired in depth and um, repair sort of system. Um, but that day, yeah, we we flew into a set of wires that we we hadn't seen. They were they weren't marked on any maps, and um and the first thing I remember was the aircraft jolting really badly. Um, and then a huge bang. And as I looked out into the three o'clock, we saw um, the wires sparking off into the three o'clock. And the, the smell of burning electricity absolutely filled my nostrils. Mm-hmm. You know, it, was, it will still stay with me to this day. If we're ever talking about something that will take you back to a traumatic time, it's that smell. Um, and I thought, you know, we were going to crash. We started wallowing towards the ground and the, the pilot was shouting, I can't see, I can't see, because the cockpit had come in on the space. Um, and then the co-pilot took control at about 10 to 15 feet off the ground and, and pulled in power and, and pulled us back into the air. So we had to limp back to Camp Bastion because unlike the UK, as I say, where we would have landed on and inspected for damage, you don't have that luxury in a war zone, sadly. So we had the longest 45-minute flight of my entire life limping mm. our way back to Bastion, not really knowing what damage we had done and whether or not the aircraft was going to, you know, sink to the ground at any moment. Um, but we got it back and, yeah, lived to fight another day, as they say. Um, your brother was there at the time, wasn't he? He saw it. Yeah, he came over. He was there with the Army. Um, he was a, an aircraft mechanic for the Army. Uh, and he came over the next morning and said, Liz, have you seen the, uh, the Chinook parked up in the hangar? He went, that crew are lucky to be alive. And I said, yeah, don't tell mum. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it was it was pretty badly damaged, to be honest. Yeah. And um, obviously not, you know, only go for as much detail as you like, because some of this that you may say now could be quite traumatic for some people. But um, if you don't mind me asking, what what for you was, was one of the hardest parts of your tour in, in Afghanistan? And yeah. only go through as much detail as you're willing to, please. Oh, no, absolutely. Um. It's funny that the greatest honour of my time there and the greatest purpose was the merch that we were on, which was the medical emergency response team. And that was the, the flying ambulance that a lot of people watching and listening will have seen on the BBC News. So essentially we were tasked and we were always on a standby to go and collect any of the injured soldiers on the battlefield. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, you know, this early days, it was very quiet because we didn't have that many British troops on the ground. And then from about 2007, eight onwards for four years, it was, you know, really busy and my busiest day in on Mert was we had 14 shouts back to back wow and, you know, we would be bringing in casualties on stretchers dropping them off at the hls which is the helicopter landing site at camp bastion and then another another one would be coming in on the radio at the same time and we'd back, back out again 
And and some of the things we were picking up, you know, um, I've seen some troops take their last breath at my feet on the back of the aircraft. Um, and I've also seen some troops be brought back to life in the back of the aircraft. You know, the, the medics were just so amazing that we flew with. Um, at one point, Afghanistan was the only place in the world where you could survive a non-survivable injury, which is a huge testament to them and the things that they were able to do. And what was essentially a flying surgical unit. Yeah. Um, but the, but the in between sort of side of that was some of the, the casualties and their injuries that we pick up you know um you know limbs and torsos I remember my my very last merch out in Afghanistan we picked up an American who'd been killed and I was given his I was handed his foot in a clear plastic bag and at that point I was so immune to the the, the trauma and so just zoned out mentally I'd normalized it so much almost and um, that this didn't even affect me you know I took the bag off him and set the bag down on the floor and it was just you know crack on with the day back to Camp Bastion mm-hmm. so you know I look back now and I think you know that was probably a coping mechanism really is that for very much yeah. when you see those things and you know torsos on stretchers and limbs everywhere you you, you have to zone it out you just have to get on with your yeah. job we always looked after those those bodies like as if they were just a very precious piece of freight we tried not to personalize them you know I certainly yeah. never really wanted to know what the outcome was at the end and you would know you'd know if someone hadn't made it because a thing called op minimize was yeah. canopied around the station uh, around Camp Bastion which meant that essentially someone had died and they did that so they could lock the telephone lines down and the internet down so that at least the family of that person were told through the right means and the right methods before the news told yeah. the story yeah, but when you we heard up minimize being tannoyed, you know, you're just your heart sank, especially mm-hmm. if you'd been on the sh- on the the merch site that morning and you knew that whoever you'd brought back hadn't made it. So mm-hmm. yeah, it was no hiding from it really, sadly. And how did you manage to decompress from that? Because I know you talked about at the beginning is like brain health for you is making sure you have that downtime uh, yeah. to know that it's not okay and that you have to do something about it. Did you have that opportunity? Obviously, it's a very busy time but did you feel that you had that opportunity to decompress or I didn't and that's where I think it caught up with me many many years after I mean I just essentially kept on the treadmill just kept going um Mm -hmm. you know I would run at the end of the day I'd go off to the gym but I just kept you know I've got a job to do they need me they're relying on me don't let the side down Mm -hmm. you know I ended up doing 10 up herricks in the end and each and every one of those you know I was on on Mert for a significant amount of time and in the early days we were on it for a week at a time and then whenever it became so traumatic that the commanders moved the duty to a day on day off um but I also think you can't underestimate that even if you were on the duty um and you never got a shout never, the back phone never went it's that heightened response of being always on high adrenaline mm-hmm. the way the system and high cortisol because you're stressed that something's going to happen yeah, and the way this the system was actually really poor looking back on it now, but we we lived in a little tent and we had the medics beside us and the force protection beside that. Um and we were on a response time 15 minutes during the day and 30 minutes at night time. And that meant that is, you know, that was purely really divvied up like that so we could go to sleep at the end of the day and actually get some proper rest. But the way that the shout would come through to the the tent was on a field phone, which is an old army system. Yeah. And it would ring twice for an admin call so they just wanted to call and tell us that the aircraft needed swapping or there was a brigade commander coming to visit or something like that it would ring twice but if it was a shout it would ring once so the phone would ring once and everybody's adrenaline would go through the roof and then you would wait for the second ring and if the second ring didn't happen you'd obviously sprint out to the aircraft so it was a really really rudimentary system in the end and probably would be much better being rigged the other way (laughs) but a different uh, time 
Yeah, but that that heightened sense of response all the time. And not just that, but going from the depths of sleep at 3 a.m. in the morning to suddenly yeah. flying over the fence, arming up your weapons, and 10 minutes later flying into a hill of bullets to pick up some casualties. Um, because we did that, you know, we were never held off. We had to go and get them because they only had an hour to live, some of them. So, you know, and going from that deep, deep sleep into that absolute complete spike of adrenaline was probably pretty dangerous in the end. But in terms of decompression, we didn't really do any. It was only from about 2010 onwards that the British forces on a whole decided that we would do decompression coming back from theatre. So we'd leave Afghanistan. We'd have two days overnight stop in um, in Cyprus where we'd be allowed to go to a beach and we'd have to, you know, we'd put on our normal clothes, like shorts and T-shirt instead of a uniform. And we'd be allowed to have three tins of beer that evening. And, and and during that day, we'd have some briefs about mental health and chat with the Padre, who's essentially like the, the priest that's there. And I think, you know, it, it definitely had a place. It was definitely useful looking back. But by that point, a lot of the damage had been done for a lot of people. It's you know, kind of like you had a trauma bucket every time the phone rang. Yeah. You, you'd kind of fill your cup. Yeah, but because you couldn't decompress, you just com- you just put the cup that was full back in the cupboard. Yeah, and then took another empty one out, and then you just kept on taking the cups out and putting them back in the cupboard. They're full, 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 and, and before you knew it, that you know you had no, you had you hadn't emptied any of them because yep. all of the buckets were full, all yeah. the cups were full. And that day, and whenever I, I took the overdose, uh, many years later. You know, I referred to that as the day I threw all the files in the back of my head everywhere because just like your cups, you know, I had been storing all of these little files away at the back somewhere yeah. and, and never really reading them and acknowledging what was what trauma was on there. Just being like, right, file, yeah, forget, file, yeah. forget, file, forget. And yeah. they were all in there at the back taking up plenty of space. Yeah. But um, I thought I'd stored them so deeply that, you know, I, I would never need to have a look at them or access them again. Yeah. And then that day they just went everywhere. Yeah, because your cabinet was full. Yeah. And, yeah, and so they had to be taken out. Yeah. And then, uh, uh, and would you just mind uh, sharing how that manifested? You know, to the point where you, where where you t- tried to take your life. Yeah, it was um, it was about a four month spiral. I look back mm-hmm. now and think, you know, so we went into lockdown in twenty uh, March in twenty twenty. And it's a, I started to lose, lose all the routine and purpose was the first mm-hmm. lockdown. You know, we I lost that, you know, the coping mechanisms we spoke about, the exercise, all those kind of things, seeing friends was another one. You know, I, classically, you know, if you're if you're going through stuff, you go out with your mates and have a pint, especially in the forces. We go down the pub on a Friday and we talk about some of the things we'd seen. That was all gone. So the, the initial lockdown lost all those factors. We came in and out of lockdown, I think, a little bit that year. And I think by the time we went into the second one, kind of over the summer, I was already now in a bad place in terms of my new routine. So my new routine was mm-hmm. new exercise, was the sugar, was all those bad habits. Mm-hmm. And then I started to develop insomnia really badly. And I think insomnia was kind of another sort of you know thing that came out of the lack of routine and mm-hmm. the sugar. Because if you're constantly eating sugar, you're not going to sleep well. If you've yeah. got new exercise, you're not tired, you don't sleep well. And sleep deprivation is a really dangerous thing, as I'm sure you're aware of. Yeah. Um, I mean, we use it as a form of torture whenever I did my escape and evasion um, course. Yeah. So I know how dangerous sleep deprivation can be. And your mind starts to play trick on, tricks on you as well. And the more you don't sleep, the more you try to sleep, which is even even worse. So I started, to, you know, one night I remember being awake and I started to look up the back catalogue of some of the soldiers that I picked up on Mert. So some of those precious pieces of freight that I'd never, ever wanted to know the back story of. I was now Googling them um, okay. for my 
and and they were you know finding out they were Pandora's box of trauma basically yeah and the red flags were absolutely there you know I had red lights flashing everywhere knowing that this was bad bad behavior but I, I just didn't tell anyone because I didn't want to be that burden and and it, it got to the point so the last four days really before the overdose I had been I had such poor sleep that I finally said I, I just need to sleep I need to get a good night's sleep and I had been prescribed a drug called amitriptyline, which is a very, um, very um, widely prescribed drug for a lot of veterans, actually, with amputations because it's a nerve and pain blocker. Um, uh-huh. I'd been prescribed it for my neck injury, which I developed during my time in the forces. And um, but and it's also an antidepressant, which I didn't know. I say I was taking it as okay. a nerve blocker for this, for this pain. And it's a really great sleeping tablet, which I'd been told whenever I first were prescribed it that you know take it at eight o'clock at night because it'll wipe you out so I thought well I'll take one of these tablets and I had been taking them a little bit sporadically for neck pain and I also remember taking one yeah. the night before the job interview because they do wipe you out so I took one on the Sunday night and had the best night's sleep ever and then took another one on the Monday and had a really great night's sleep so much so I'd actually ordered a repeat prescription off them because I was due a repeat anyway and I thought well yeah. these are great sleeping tablets so I'd order a repeat prescription on the Monday by the Wednesday, having taken another Monday and Tuesday night, I woke up on the Wednesday and it was like I'd been body snatched by the Grim Reaper. I woke up that morning and I just wasn't myself. I had suicidal thoughts straight away and felt like I was just watching my life through a movie. I was detached emotionally from my body and myself. Yeah. And you'd um, probably not taken that medication that often, so you'd not had yeah. the the kind of uh, condensed effect of it. Absolutely. Um so I called the GP um, that morning at 10 o'clock and, well, I actually emailed the I emailed the, the GP to say, look, I've woken up this morning and I'm having these suicidal thoughts. It's very unlike me. Yeah. And it's classic, you know, it's so much, so hard sometimes to lift the phone and say that to someone. So I just did yeah. what I thought was an easier option, sent an email. And I actually sent it to the pharmacy by mistake. So they sent an email back saying, you've come through to the pharmacy. You need to call the GP, not us. Um, here's the number. So I was like, okay. So I called the GP. <laughs> And I and, uh, said, you know, I woke up this morning, I'm having suicidal thoughts. It's very unlike me. Um, and the lady on the phone said, um, okay, can you call back on Thursday? To which point I just broke down. I, you know, oh I was like, goodness, that's terrible. <laughs> but don't forget, we were in COVID times and they were absolutely stretched. So yeah. she, after breaking down, she said, look, I'm really, really sorry. We'll get the doctor to call you this afternoon. So the doctor called me at two o'clock. And I explained everything again, broke down in tears to him. And he said, look, I'll prescribe you some antidepressants um, that'll be ready this afternoon. And he did say, don't, be, when you do take them, they'll put you in a worse mood before they pull you out of this hole. Yeah. But at no point did he say, do you want to come across and speak to someone in person? And I only lived opposite the surgery. He didn't say, um, what other medication are you taking? Which would have been a really important question, I think, yeah. at that point. Uh, and he also didn't look at my notes to see that I'd already reordered amitriptyline on the Monday. So mm-hmm. I hung up the phone that that day and thought, well, actually, no one cares right now. And wow. the irony is that I could have called anybody, any of my friends and told them the same thing and they would have been there in an instant. You know, people did mm-hmm. care. But in my head and the way that my brain was playing tricks, I absolutely thought, that's it, no one cares. Well, so, I think because the carers yeah, were not <laughs> expressing, you know, if you go back to your, your experience, mm-hmm. uh, is you always cared. Yeah. You no, know, irrespective of what state of health the people were on the Chinook. Yeah. You know, you've always cared. It didn't yeah. matter what state of mind people are in. You were always there for them. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, like that. they yeah. weren't there for you at the time that you needed the most. 
Yeah, and you're absolutely right. And you know, I never really thought about it like that. Um, but I just thought, yeah, they just don't care. So I went across that afternoon at four o'clock and picked up my lethal dose of drugs now, two bags of drugs from the chemist, the same chemist that I emailed that morning saying that I wanted to kill myself. And um wow. I skipped merrily home. And I was strangely calm at this point. It was almost like a weight had been lifted off my shoulders because I'd finally mm-hmm. made my decision. And I always refer to it like sort of like a tunnel. I think like a water slide, you know, I had at that point picked up my donut and I was at the top of that water slide and I was only going one way and nobody could have stopped me at that point. I was in the departure lounge. You know, I, I remember saying to someone, even if Brad Pitt or, you know, David Craig or Daniel Craig had come around that night for dinner, I, I still would have found a way to do what I was going to do. Mm-hmm. And that was something that coming up the other side of suicide is my parents and my friends and family have all said, you know, Liz, why didn't you reach out for help? And I was like, because at that point I was already emotionally gone. Yeah. So um, I wrote a suicide note, you know, to my parents and, and mentioned a few family in that and few friends. And, you know, I've always thought suicide is the most selfish thing that anyone could do. You know, anytime I've heard of suicide um, or people being affected by suicide, I remember thinking, what a what a shallow and like selfish way to leave things. You know, all those questions, mm-hmm. all those unanswered questions and, you know, all the, that thought from other loved ones going, what can I have done to stop stop that? And yet here I was doing exactly that you know writing my suicide note and without it, an emotion in sight not a tear was shed the whole day and um, which just kind of again it backs up how emotionally detached I was from my own mood and my own self at that point um but yeah I was absolutely in that departure lounge and then I um had dinner tidied the flat that I lived in um had a shower and did my hair and makeup to look pretty and then at midnight sat on the side of the bed and took 95 amitriptyline wow. and went to sleep don't remember anything after that so um by the very nature of the fact I'm now sat on a screen talking to you means that I did obviously survive and I didn't know how I woke up um two days later and my eyes were I opened my eyes and was in a hospital bed and I had an incubation tube down my throat and the clock at the end of the bed said half six and I thought it was half six the next morning and it wasn't it was actually two days later and I'd been on life support for two days but I wow. remember the feeling of breathing like I couldn't breathe I was I felt like I was drowning with this tube down my throat mm-hmm. and I remember clutching at it and trying to pull it out the doctors eventually put me back to sleep and brought me around again but my overwhelming emotion was I don't want to die I thought I was drowning thought I was dying and I didn't want to die and it's so weird looking back now at that high, you know, 48 hours before that, that was all I wanted to do. Yet here I was absolutely fighting for my life. So eventually the tube came out. The doctors explained that I'd been brought in by an ambulance. And I, I still didn't really know how, who'd phoned the ambulance, who'd found me, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until a couple of days later when I actually got out of hospital and was reunited with my phone. And I went through that with my best friend. And I'd actually called the Samaritans at 10 to 1 for 13 seconds. And then straight after that, I had called 911. So I still don't know to this day if the Samaritans had said, you need to call the emergency services. Mm-hmm. And I, but I suspected they had it done, they would have said call 999, not 911. <laughs> Either way, I called 911 and thankfully it did go through to the emergency services. Um, and then and I was on the phone to the ambulance service for about 10 minutes, I think. So they must have come to come and find me. Um, I thanked them wow. a few weeks later. I, I, I said, because I knew that COVID times, they were so busy. So I wanted to thank them. And apparently, if I hadn't lived near the hospital, I could see the hospital from my apartment. They said, you probably wouldn't have made it. So I was a very wow. lucky girl, very lucky girl. But very lucky. there's something in us that wants to survive. You know, I yeah. don't know what made me make that phone call. I don't remember it, but something made me make that phone call. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I, and I want to take you back to, you know, whether you think it's selfish. The suicide is kind of like the, the last resort to escape the pain you're in. Yeah. I just wanted to Because you've run out of options. Yeah. I um, I had a noisy head. It's probably how I'd describe it. My, my head just wouldn't stop. You know, yeah. the insomnia, every time I put my head on the pillow to try and sleep, these random thoughts would go through my head and I couldn't pin them down. It wasn't like, you know, when you're, you're worried about a job interview or you're worried about you paying your mortgage, there wasn't a, a thread to the thoughts. It was just thoughts all the time. And I'd done loads, yeah, I'd done loads of stuff about mindfulness and about how you should imagine the train coming into the platform and then seeing the train, acknowledging the train, let the train move on. I was, I was trying all that. It just wasn't working. It's too um, busy. Yeah, and, and there's the things doing here, there and everywhere. Yeah, there's some of the things I was thinking was I was going through the gun drills, the stoppage drills that we used to have yeah. on the aircraft. You know, some emergency proceed things I would never need to know again. And yeah, yeah they were you open that Pandora's box and you know all of the memories that you put in your cabinet. Yeah, and I just I back to try and reprocess them. Yeah, but you so, you obviously didn't have the skills at the time, which is completely understandable. Yeah, to to, to file them. Yeah. and work through them one by one because you just open the whole box <laughs> yeah and I look back and find it really fascinating to kind of you know talk with someone like yourself about it in terms of you know at no point that day did I consider you know finding a gun and shooting myself or jumping off a bridge or doing anything ironically I didn't want to do anything that would hurt <laughs> but I wanted yeah. to die and you know obviously the outcome is still the same but I, I just wanted to go to sleep and go to sleep forever and not wake up yeah. and and I, I I wonder if we're maybe predisposed to do that as you know males versus females or if there's a certain way you're brought up or things you're exposed to that make you already predisposed to how you're going to think about that yeah. I do find it fascinating but yeah certainly that day you know I didn't want to do anything that was as brutal as you know hanging myself or jumping sure. off and it's really weird looking back now on, on you know how my mind was working yeah, I think I think it's you know obviously people choose different routes, don't they, to to get rid of the pain. And um, I think it's interesting if you know looking at people who come to the end of life, they just want to go to sleep. To often they want to go to sleep, yeah. um, so that they can end the suffering that they're in. Yeah, um, and we don't necessarily pay enough attention to the fact that you don't have to be in physical pain. To yeah. necessarily want to go to sleep to end it, yeah, it can and be emotional pain, mental yeah. pain, uh, spiritual pain because you've your out your outlook on life has been completely shifted, and obviously you had an awful lot of aspects of that all wrapped up in when you first went into lockdown because you you changed from your job that you loved into a different role. You obviously had the emotional pain from the from the divorce that you were going through. And then you had, when you opened that Pandora's box of trauma, you had to, all of the mental pain and mm. the emotional pain lay, layered on top uh, that just, you know, you, you obviously, your brain couldn't process it all, which was Absolutely. why it was whizzing yeah. at a thousand miles an hour. Absolute overload. Uh, the chapter in the book when I'm talking about that kind of spiral, that downfall, I call the chapter the domino effect. And that's very much what it felt like. You know, I... I left the forces. Uh, well, the first domino was really I lost a, a very close friend, one of my best yeah. friends, another crew girl with me. You know, her and I dodged bullets in Afghanistan for years together. And then she got diagnosed with cancer and sadly died in, in 2017. And that was like the first domino. And then 
I got medically discharged from the RAF, which was like the second domino. And that lack of identity coming out the other side, that was huge as well. You know, in the forces, a lot of we all wear our name badge on our chest. And I often wondered if that was so other people could see who I was or if I knew who I was. You know, every day I could look down and it said Liz McConaughey Krejcik. And I knew that that's who I was. And suddenly I wasn't wearing that anymore. And I didn't really know who I was. And then I went through a messy divorce and then I we, ha- we had lockdown. So it was almost a catalogue of bad, you know, just one kidney punch after another kidney punch that kind of got me to that point. So like you say, I think my brain was just sick of taking a bashing by that point. Yeah. And they <laughs> yeah. were all separately, you know, different types of pain because you had just, you know, as I mentioned, the spiritual pain of losing your identity. Yeah. From changing your job role because you'll have had all of your identity tied into what you were doing for 17 years. Yeah, and that's going to be a huge child as well. Yeah, I mean, I can't underestimate the fact that I went in straight from school. You know, I never had an yeah. other identity. It was just, you know, straight out of A-level, straight into that uniform. So it, my entire working life, my entire adult life, really, at that point, had been that person. Yeah. And, and, and the just, family associated with it as well, all that social connection that you talked about so important at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. You know, you kind of feel that you're losing because you become... You, you know you're not part of that direct social community that you're, yeah. you're so used to tapping into yeah I felt invisible and and the weird thing is is that all of my friends were there for me you know I wasn't invisible I could have picked up the phone any single one of them and they would have dropped anything from the other side of the world to come and, and make sure I was okay yeah. but all I had to do was make that phone call and and that's what I've learned coming out the other side of this is that um, I wore the word resilience, like uh, I mentioned that word earlier. I wore it on my, on my, you know, like a badge of honor for my career. I, I remember having it written in a lot of my reports, you know, as I went through my career, you know, your promotion reports, Liz McConaughey is so resilient. Sergeant McConaughey is so resilient. Flight Sergeant McConaughey is so resilient. And I misunderstood what that word was. I thought that word meant unbreakable. And I kept trying to be more and more resilient. But because I'd misunderstood what the word meant in the first place, I was just trying to be more and more unbreakable. You know, when asked to go and volunteer for an extra deployment, yes, I'll do that. I can do anything. I'm okay. And, you know, and taking on other people's pain as well. You know, when one of the lads was feeling a bit down after a bad merch shot, I'd be like, come on and get a coffee. You know, I'd put my arms around them and try and look after them and because I was unbreakable. And what I've learned the hard way, you know, sort of coming through my counselling is that it's really okay. You know, resilience means, being able to break and come back stronger you know being able to learn from your mistakes and and add them to you like armor coming out the other side of that so now I'm absolutely you know when I have my bad days I'm so authentic with it you know I tell people I'm just not having a good day today don't know why Mm -hmm. I, I wish I'd made those kind of calls and those phone calls and had those conversations before I'd got to that stage you know it could have been such a different outcome that day you know I, I might have not survived and might not be here to tell the tale so you know, anyone I ever speak to now when I'm talking about mental health, I absolutely say that because don't get to the point where you're in that departure lounge and it's too late and you've mentally checked out of your body. You know, yeah. when you start to see the red red flags, just, you know, allow yourself to be human. You know, I, I certainly ask twice now whenever I speak to people, um, you know, and ask them how, how they are, I always ask twice because when people were asking me that year, how are you? I'd say, yeah, I'm okay. Living the dream was a good one to try and get, you know, get away from the conversation and then turn it straight back on them. I'm okay. How are you? And it meant that they didn't dig it deeper and go any further. Yeah. Um, but usually if someone would ask me twice, it would just be enough to crack the eggshell a little bit. And I kind of start yeah. to waver. Um, and I also now give my mental health a number 
which I find really useful. I, I sort of, you know, and I think other people find it much easier to sort of, instead of actually saying what's wrong, just say, you know, I'm a two out of 10 today. Yeah. It, and you know, that's really interesting because I did a talk uh, right beginning of lockdown and asked people to rate themselves out of 10 from a mental health perspective. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you had the sort of, you had a peak at six, but there was quite a low trough at three. Yeah. Uh, yeah. For some of the people in the group. Yeah. Um, and it re- for me, it not only tells other people that I'm either having a good day, bad day, or, or somewhere mm-hmm. in between, but if I know that I'm constantly saying the words or the number three, and I've been saying that for a few weeks now, I can now pick up the trend myself. You yeah. know, I'm just aware of that number. It's now I'm saying the word three more often and I'm not saying, yeah, I'm not having a great day. That doesn't seem to register as much in my brain as saying a number. Yeah. So if I can say a number, then it means I can just keep track of my own mental health a little bit better and yeah. kind of you know, try and dig it out of that place if I need to yeah. a little bit quicker. So I absolutely say to people, you know, give your mental health a number. Yeah. Um, try and get everyone that I speak to now I just sort of do that so I, I can consistently getting asked in the gym what number are we today Liz <laughs> but <laughs> another really good question to ask because I know sometimes there's a bit of a stigma as you just mentioned when people say you okay is yeah. we, we naturally respond to yeah yeah I'm fine <laughs> yeah when we're absolutely not fine um because often we feel like someone's pointing a pink finger at us as yeah. being faulty so we don't yeah. want to acknowledge that we're faulty. So we just say it's fine because it comes back to not wanting to be a burden. Yeah. But but sometimes if you ask the question, is everything okay? You It allows you to look outwardly at things in your life that are affecting you and not be pointing the finger at yourself. So that's what I, I often that. do in yeah. a brain health perspective because the brain is just the organ that runs everything. Yeah. doesn't mean just because our brain's in trouble in the same way as a heart doesn't mean that you know the world is going to end as it were it just means our brain yeah. is struggling it's not you're completely broken just need help fixing it and so when I you love look that. At, really good point yeah. yeah absolutely brilliant point um I I got asked in one of the talks I did recently and you know a chap said at the end Liz I, I think I've got a friend who's struggling how can I go about getting him to open up and to talk to me and I said well think whenever I was going through my dark times if someone had said to me like you said are you okay it was almost like they were I knew I was at fault and they were trying They're to judging find you because it's because yeah. you can't point the finger yeah and I said to be honest what I would probably do is let your your own crack show you know say look I'm really struggling today and even if it's something niff naff and trim just make yourself human make yourself authentic and show your own cracks and if you show your you're cracked then other people are more likely to open up and go, oh my God, I'm having an absolute shocker today or yeah. I've been feeling dreadful for weeks or I just can't lift my mood. And people are more likely to kind of warm to that human authenticness um, and, and open up, really. So yeah, yeah. yeah. But I do like the idea of asking, is everything okay? That's a very good, you know, really good yeah, one. Yeah, because you look outwardly and then, and then it starts to identify the root causes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, you mentioned earlier, you'd ask, be asking yourself the question, why, why, why? That's yeah. a really great question to ask ourselves because we start to get to the root cause of what's why we're, our brain is struggling. Yeah. So you're like, oh, you know, oh, it's opening, opening things on the internet and you know, getting curious about people who 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 I'd helped or you know when I was in Afghanistan, uh, and you start capturing all of these nuggets of information which, in isolation, you might not pay attention to, but when you add it all up. You're oh, yeah. everything. Yeah. <laughs> you start realizing that there's lots of dominoes, like you say. Yeah. That are falling. 
And we all have that, you know, it's, it don't, you don't need to be an ex-military person to be suffering from the domino effect in your life. It can be mm-hmm. anything and it can be even stuff that's not directly affecting you, but you feel the love for that thing. Like, you know, your kids struggling and all those little things in life are just those external pressures. And, you know, it's like the, the Jenga bucket. I used to call it the Jenga bucket of stress. We used to have a game whenever we were deployed that we would try and fit as much into the bin as possible. And whoever put the last thing on top of the bin when the bin overflowed would have to empty the bin. And it's almost like your brain, you know, we we tip, we, we fill it up and fill it up and fill it up right till it's a breaking point instead of going, right, I need to start, you know, just offloading a few bits and, and emptying it every so often. Um, yeah. 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 And you have to offload it to something or someone, don't you? Yeah. So if you, you know, if your friends aren't the right people, you know, thankfully you called the Samaritans because mm. your yeah. mind was still, you know, connected to do, to, to, to make the right decisions. Thankfully, you know, it was. Phone somebody. It doesn't have to be your friends because the Samaritans are there to be the to be that offload burden. Yeah, hugely. I, I mean, I don't even know how I find the number from the Samaritans, but obviously, I had it somewhere. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so I know we didn't get into the five pillars, and we're nearly on time. But I, you know, we started with connection at the beginning, and I'd love to just quickly dive into that based on the conversation we had. Is mm. what for you now? in the context of connection to yourself is the most important value that guides you in life? Because I know you mentioned resilient was a really key word for you historically. What would you say is for you now, having gone through this journey? I think I, I mean, for me, my, my biggest thing I've always needed in life is that sense of purpose um, huh? and having purpose. I think, you know, if I can use what what I went through and use my story to change people's lives you know to absolutely turn people's lives around who are going through the same thing in PTSD or I've got someone else close to them I've, I've had a few people who have reached out to me since the book came out and said that they've convinced their other halves to go and get help having read my book you know so it's not even directly affecting people but it's those periphery of you know loved ones around that so for me the connection to having a purpose is huge for me and I think that's what that's what gets me out of bed in the morning that's what did for 17 years you know get me up in the morning and and going off to fly on the Chinook was that sense of purpose and and that I think is what I really lost for the last two years and I think it took you know almost took the book to come out and hit the streets and my story to go out there and then start you know I had a pregnant pause I guess where I thought well is anyone going to even want to read this or I never actually wrote the book to be published I wrote it while I was going through all my lockdown um mm-hmm. PTSD counseling in a very cathartic process so the fact that it was even published and now people are actually reading it and getting something from it you know um that to me is is purpose and, and that's my main connection I think to why I'm on this planet <laughs> yeah I, I love that and I think also important like people can sometimes make out purpose to be a huge big thing but actually often it's living purposefully every day. Yeah. So doing something every day that brings you a sense of purpose. Yeah. And every day now, I, I mean, I'm getting a minimum of five or six messages from people just to say that I've helped them in some way. So I just want to keep snowballing that and, and keep That's spreading the word. Really. <laughs> Liz, I know this show is all about brain health, unchaining your pain. What one piece of advice would you give anybody who's struggling with trauma, maybe they've been diagnosed with PTSD, they feel pretty isolated uh, and they feel that they're spiralling down here, what would your piece of advice be? Talk. 
talk about it early, you know, just even, I mean, the day that I was having those thoughts and I went to pick up my drugs, I stopped at the local chip van and got fish and chips on the way home for tea because I never used to eat fish and chips. And I thought, well, I'm, I'm going to have a last supper. I should have fish and chips. And I look back now and think, I wish I just grabbed the man in the chip shop and said, help me. I'm, I'm going to go home and kill myself tonight. Just, just help me. And yes, it would have been a pretty random thing to do, but it might've worked. And I just think if you can just reach out and say that I need help and be be vulnerable, you will be surprised at how many people are a willing to help you because people in their inherent natural being want to help others. You know, we're we're a good human being, you know, human society. We do want to help people. That's that's how we are. And you know, even if if it's someone who's not a friend and who's either a professional or just a random stranger, people want to help each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so just be authentic and reach out for help. And and what you will also find, not only that people want to help you, but you'll probably help other people in a way. And that's what I've found is the more I've reached out for help and the more I've, I've asked for it, the the more I'm kind of getting back from other people who, you know, also have needed that help. So, yeah. yeah. It's kind of like putting into the bank of giving, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. it really is. You so. get it back. Yeah. That's, that, that's so great advice. And I think, you know, going back to your point where you reached out to the healthcare system and you didn't feel like you got the help, is yeah. don't let that be your last call for help. No. And there are you know, numbers. Out there. Yeah, there are numbers out there you can text as well. Because I think actually making just saying the words, I mean, I find it very difficult after I, uh, you know, taking the overdose to even say those words to people. And even just before I even got to that point, just uttering the words, I need help out of my throat was so hard. And yeah. I remember the first call I had to make when I came out of hospital was four days later, I had to call um, the Veterans Gateway to kind of explain to them who I was, to get them my service number and kind of go into the Veterans Health healthcare system to get help with yeah. combat stress and, and all those people. But just spitting it out there, you know, lovely Welsh man answers the phone. Hi, I'm such and such. How can I help you? I mean, to say I'm Liz and I tried to end my life and I need help. It's the hard, it was the hardest conversation I've ever had to make. But some of the charities now have have text numbers, uh, certainly yeah. Combat Stress Day, and I put it in the back of the book as well. They've got a number to call and a text number. And just sometimes we all find it easier to put things in words. You know, it feels slightly less, you know, in your face and, and quite personal. Yeah. You, you can and just it's traumatic it. saying it because yeah. you're opening up that Pandora's box, aren't you? Yeah. So, That's you know, if you, yourself, if you can't bring yourself to talk and tell someone, text them and tell them just put it in words and get it out there at least somebody can do something about it because they can't help you if they don't know yeah and what we'll do is we'll put the numbers in the show notes as well for people who need help the Samaritans and so on that you've you've mentioned particularly the combat stress and the charities that support uh, military veterans obviously here in the UK but go to your local military veteran charity wherever you are based based in the world Liz it's been an um absolute pleasure having you on your on the show thank you so much for sharing your story and and giving hope to others how can people get hold of you uh to learn about your book and what you do yeah so I've recently joined Twitter um and I'm on Twitter as actually chick yeah and it's great I mean I love meeting people and interacting with people so if anyone is watching and wants to join on there I just love kind of meeting new people and learning from them um, and I'm on Instagram as at uh, Chinook Crew Chick, so the title of the book as well on, on Instagram. So, yeah, please connect. You know, I, I'm meeting so many wonderful people through this journey. Um, and as I say, not only am I hopefully helping them, but they're helping me in so many ways. The more I talk about it, the more I'm getting out there. 
and there's less less remnants lurking around in my brain so it's definitely cathartic in a way as well yeah yeah and I'd love to connect you with some of the other guests on the show um Mike McCarthy um who's been on the show to talk about the loss of his son Ross to suicide and they're they're building a baton of hope initiative um to help um you know get to zero suicide is that is the ambition yeah if there's anything I can do to support you um your military colleagues um to help people unchain their pain then you know obviously hopefully chat with you after and I'd love to do whatever can to support you that's fantastic to hear it makes it does make a difference it really does hearing messages like that from someone like yourself yeah and remember everyone this show is all about brain health unchaining your pain you're not stuck with the brain you have you have the power to make it better and this here's been Connie sharing her journey to show you how I really hope you enjoyed that conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to like and share this episode and leave a review on my website or on Apple Podcasts. If you're looking for opportunities to optimise your brain health or unchain your pain from a past trauma, make sure you visit my website www.ruthmaryallen.com and use the code PODCAST10 at checkout to get 10% off all programs. And always remember, you are not stuck with the brain you have. You have the power to make it better. You have the power to unchain your pain and optimise your brain power and performance so that you can win back energy and time doing what you love.